listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The testimonials appearing in this podcast reflect individual experiences and individual results may vary. Cardinal Health does not claim, nor should the listener assume, that any individual experience recounted in this podcast is representative of what another consumer may experience. The Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast in collaboration with Pharmacy Podcast Network is for independent pharmacists to learn about the state of the industry, innovative services and solutions, and the future of pharmacy. Join me, your host, Jason Calori, for conversations with pharmacists, Cardinal Health leaders, and industry experts sharing best practices, discussing industry trends, and showcasing Cardinal Health products and services. You can subscribe to the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. I'm your host, Jason Calori, and today we have a great episode for everyone. I am joined by some special guests to bring you the latest information out of Washington, D.C. when it comes to independent pharmacy. To tell us what's happening on the Hill, we have two members of the Cardinal Health Government Relations team. First, Heather Ulray, Director, State Government Relations. Heather leads State Government Relations for Cardinal Health, where she manages issues across the enterprise and lobbies at the state and local level. We also have Jerrica Mathis, who leads the Federal Government Relations team as Vice President of Federal Government Relations. Jerrica is assisted with trade associations and individual clients with legislative and regulatory advocacy and strategies before Congress and federal agencies. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Nice to have you back. Uh, Jerrica, we've done this before. So glad to uh, have you back on. Heather's your first time on the podcast, so any, any nerves? You're good? A little nervous, but I'm pretty good. <laughs> I think you'll be. I got Jerrica here. <laughs> you got Jerrica here, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's dive right in, guys. Uh, yesterday was a big day around the country. States and cities across America held elections on Tuesday in the uh, last major election day until the presidential primaries begin in January. Uh, since this is the day after Election Day, and a lot of the results were revealed last night, we had Ohio voted in security right to abortion in its constitution. Governor Andy Bashir was reelected in Kentucky. Democrats gained control of Virginia's legislature, and Mississippi's Republican governor, uh, governor Tate Reeves, secured a second term. Now, I want to ask both of you from your own analysis on how everything took shape from a state and federal level, and how you think any of this could affect the independent pharmacies. Sure. Sounds good. So, Jerick, I guess I get to go first because the real action happened at the state level yesterday, <laughs> not as much at the federal. I think what's so interesting to everyone is just voter turnout being as high as it was across the country, not just here in Ohio, which saw historical highs for voter turnout, but again, across the country. And what we've seen is in Michigan, for example, two, two members of the legislature, actually one um, mayor, mayor seats. And okay. so now we're faced with a legislature that has a very slim majority and really can't get anything done for the rest of the year. Um, so there's, there's that happening across the country as well in different states where those razor thin majorities are you're dealing with a governor who's a Republican and a House that's a Democrat. It's going to really affect what happens for the rest of this year and into next year, too. Jericho, what about your perspective? What are you seeing? I completely agree with, with Heather. And as she mentioned, most of the, the action last night was on the state side. There was one uh, new member of Congress that is, will join us in D.C. at the beginning of the year. There was a vacancy in Rhode Island's first congressional district. Um, and it was a bit of a historic win in, in Rhode Island. Uh, the Congressman Gabe Amo is uh, Rhode Island's first uh, black member of Congress that they've elected to D.C. Um, he seems to be pretty progressive 
from what we are seeing so far mm -hmm. on, on health care issues. And so I, I think going along with the, the thin margins and how this affects issues, health care is on the ballot. Health care was mm -hmm. on the ballot for this election. Yep. I think it will continue as we head into the larger presidential and congressional elections for next year. As it should be. What, what does the legislative calendar now look like going forward after all this? I'm not going to say there was a ton of change yesterday. You said it mainly happened on the state level. Correct. But what does the calendar look like for you know the feds and for the states? Sure. So from a state perspective, you still have about six states, actually seven, that are in session right now. Texas is in special session. They just The governor just called them back in for a fourth special session. That's, I believe, the first time that's happened in Texas history. So you'll have those that are coming back for what's called a lame duck, right? Mm -hmm. You have the opportunity to pass some legislation before the Christmas holiday season. Um, and then coming back next year, you'll have the majority of states back in session. You have states like Kentucky that are only in session for a few short months. And then you have states like Ohio, which legislate year-round and have the opportunity to pass legislation year-round. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of all across the board. Nevada doesn't come back at all next year. They take a whole year off. They take a big, old, long break. So we will be monitoring things um, across across the country still. In, from, a, from a state level, has that always happened? Or That's is it, always happened. It's, it's states' rights. Way. It's states' rights. Individual states' rights to decide how they want to organize their legislature and uh, falling by the constitutional rules that there are in that state for by the state constitution. So, oh, interesting. What about you? What about you, Chess? What do you think? Yeah. So at the federal level, um, we do have another year. We have a second session of the 118th Congress. So our clock does not stop at the end of December 2023. Yet it does still feel like a race to the finish because we had a few um, legislative weeks where things were not happening due to the uh, funding of the government at the last minute, at the end of, of September. Uh, Congress passed a very short-term continuing resolution that expires about a week from now, November um, 17th. And then after they decided to fund the government for six weeks, they decided to vacate the, the office of the speaker. Uh, it <laughs> took a few additional weeks to find someone to take that role. Mm -hmm. um, the House has a newly elected speaker, so legislative business is now getting underway. But the race to the end of the calendar year is trying to catch up on a few weeks that they lost. Um, so one, continuing now again to figure out how they are going to fund the government, we think it will be another short-term patch that gets us through the beginning of calendar year, 20, the beginning of January 2024, um, and then possibly another short-term um, funding measure to fund the rest of fiscal year 2024. But in the meantime, it leaves a lot of legislative proposals on the table, things that did not get reauthorized and renewed in time, programs that expired at the end of September. Uh, many of them are health care programs, mm -hmm. Medicare and Medicaid extenders. On top of it, it just relates to pharmacy issues, which I know we'll talk about more, um, PBM reform issues, provider status, a lot of bills that stakeholders are really interested in getting passed at the end of this calendar year, because while we have another year of Congress next year, you run into the elections and legislating stops a yeah. little bit Correct. before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How do some of those legislative proposals essentially get tracked and and organized as you like you said you, you hit a break mm -hmm. we didn't have anything going on for two weeks they were mm -hmm. trying to find a speaker some of that stuff gets put on hold and i can only imagine the amount of legislative proposals that are out there when it comes to either health care infrastructure yep. uh, education funding transportation whatever it may be mm -hmm. how does all that stuff get even organized or do they even do they just kind of take it as they come how does that work so it's a bit about the who who is the noisiest, right? Yep. What's the noisiest topic that gets traction? Okay. 
Um, and I think that's true from both a federal and a state perspective. And what are ideas that can get run on when you're running a campaign? What's, what's easily translatable to the voter are ones that seem to stick and move the quickest, in addition to simply funding the government. Like, a government mm -hmm. shutdown is not in the best interest of anybody running for office. Um, or a state government that can't pass a budget is not in the best interest of anybody running for office. But we, as Jerrica began with, we tend to see that health care issues, everybody, everybody's impacted by health care mm -hmm. in some way or another, whether it's you're walking up to your pharmacist to fill a prescription or you're going into the doctor's office to be seen for a backache. Everybody's impacted, and so everybody has some experience there, and those are issues that will, for decades forward, will always be a piece of um, legislative movement. I completely agree um, and completely agree with Heather's assessment. I was going to say stakeholders. Uh, this, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Whoever is the <laughs> loudest, most vocal stakeholders, and this is where advocacy is really important. Mm -hmm. um, again, you have two years in Congress, and you have a wide variety of competing issues, not just in the healthcare space, but as you've mentioned, it could be education, it could be taxes, it could be so many other things. Mm -hmm. But stakeholders... Um, sticking to their platform, using their messaging, mm -hmm. using their members and their constituency to stay in front of their members of Congress telling their stories is how things move. Um, on the federal level, as far as that legislation actually getting advanced, um, the the House, this Congress, wants to go through what we call regular order. So once a bill gets introduced, they would like it to be scored to see how much it's going to cost um, the federal government, who could be impacted by it. They would like to have a formal congressional hearing, meaning they could mark up the legislation, make changes, add amendments, take things out, add things in. Um, and then pass one chamber and pass the next. Um, so it is hard to try to get um, an issue added to an end of year package if no one on Congress has addressed it or seen it. You may have an existing bill that's been introduced, but unless you've done some advocacy around it and gotten some champions, uh, some co-sponsors, been able to see how much that bill is going to cost and, and possibly at least get it talked about at a hearing, you're probably not going to see much advancement at the federal level. I could have probably guessed whatever is making the most noise is probably going to get the most reaction and, and the most traction. Totally, totally, uh, totally probably could have guessed that one. Um, but thanks for that insight. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the trends we saw over the past year, including H.R. 1770, which is mm -hmm. essentially the provider status bill. Um, the state of play addressing PBMs. We talked a lot about this at uh, at RBC mm -hmm. uh, with um, with Doug Hoy and and Buddy Carter that came to visit right, and, and talked right. to the, in, the entire group about it. So we had some updates there. So where are we now? What are some of those trends and what what's happening this year, which is kind of gonna maybe filter into even next year? Yeah, for sure. Um, Healthcare continues to dominate, and, and, and we knew this. We knew this, uh, but uh, Heather will get to speak to the states, but I think we feel comfortable saying we knew at the federal and the state level mm -hmm. that healthcare issues were going to be at the top of the priority list, particularly around PBM reform. As it stands now, Jason, we're probably upwards of 25, 27 bills that have been introduced at the federal um, level, both across the House and the Senate, and the majority of them tend to be bipartisan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Senate is a little bit further ahead than the House in moving PBM reform legislation at just today, a couple of hours ago, before we met with you all, uh, the Senate Finance Committee had a markup of a PBM package 
I mentioned there were upwards of 25 bills. They're largely among the same themes of those bills. Um, a couple of those themes being transparency, mm-hmm. looking into how PBMs make money, how that money gets how that money makes it gets passed down to patients, what some of their practices are, banning gag clauses, um, introducing any ruling pharmacy provisions, banning spread pricing. Um, a lot of these things are across many of the piecemeal bills that have been introduced. The Senate Finance Committee has come up with a package that they advanced out of committee today favorably, and I do think that if there is going to be any substantial PBM reform at the federal level, it is likely to be this particular package. Mm-hmm. Stakeholders have made it very clear that they don't just want transparency. They don't just want more insights into PBM practices and and data that PBMs are actually submit, they actually want to see real reforms. Another trend that we're seeing in the PBM reform space is delinking, and that's limiting a PBM's income to a flat fee versus collecting fees on an average of um, on, the, on an average percentage of the list price of a drug. So this delinking trend is in is in a lot of PBM bills that we've seen introduced too. So among some of those themes, those are all in the Senate Finance Package, and there could very well be a shot that this makes it to some end of the year package if Congress gets it together. If not, I do predict that it will continue to be a ripe topic mm-hmm. coming into 2024. It's so fascinating, right? Because healthcare can be such a polarizing topic as well. But when it comes to prescription drugs, prescription drug affordability, it is 100% a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. So you'll see Democratic states passing PBM reform. You'll see Republican states passing PBM reform. You'll see everybody running on their desire to reduce the cost of prescription drugs for everyday Americans. I mean, we saw Florida just this past May Uh, The Florida governor signed into law a massive PBM reform bill, which I'm sure you've talked about previously. Many of those provisions will go into effect starting on January 1st, 2024, Mm -hmm. including a lot of transparency along how how PBMs are practicing in that state. You know, the governor there is currently running for president, and he's been touting his PBM reform as kind of the the next stage of PBM reform across the country. And I do believe that folks are looking at what's happening in Florida and taking note of it and trying to see what they can do in their own states to move Mm -hmm. PBM reform forward. Now, as far as the PBMs, now we know the PBMs have a strong stronghold with lobbying and and really trying to make their case to, to keep themselves going. Are we seeing any reaction to some of the actions happening for PBM so far? So at the state level, what we see happen very often when PBM legislation is introduced is that PSAOs are then dragged into that conversation too. And there's all this talk around transparency. So a lot of our work, a lot of the things that we do at the state level is really making people understand again that what PSAOs are doing, Mm -hmm. how they help our pharmacists, Mm -hmm. and um, how they aren't the same, right, as PBMs, mm-hmm. because people, when you hear abbreviations, you just want to lump it all together and <laughs> and make it and make folks think that it's the same. And so that's part of our job from an advocacy perspective is really helping people understand, like we talked about earlier, those complicated topics and simplifying them. And that's what we're doing in the PBM reform space in the states. I'd say at the federal level, so there is a, an organization called PCMA. It's the trade group for, for PBMs, and they have countered a lot of the legislation that's been introduced by launching an ad campaign 
believe it or not, you come home from work and you're having dinner and you are watching yep. commercials along with the six o'clock news about, you know, why PBMs are good. It's a little unprecedented and it does make me think um, outside of the Beltway, how much people who are impacted by PBM practices are actually paying attention and, and mm -hmm. you know, how they are interpreting all of this and what that will mean for them as they go out to vote um, next year. But yes, PCMA has responded with a large ad campaign. They have also been called to testify in front of Congress a couple of times this year. Wow. And, I, mm -hmm. you know, I guess to just to basically summarize, I think that they would say that they are misunderstood, that PBMs are helpful in reducing the cost of, of drugs and making them more affordable, and that Congress should maybe look into other sectors of the healthcare supply chain for... Uh, which is why you know about why drugs cost um, what they do. Mm -hmm. What's most interesting, Jason, is about a month ago, um, a new coalition was launched called Transparency RX, and Transparency RX is made of PBMs that are pro PBM reform, um, which is very. And How okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to uh, <laughs> like, like, what is Jerrica saying right now? <laughs> so launched by PBMs mm -hmm. that are uh, that are against. PBM reform, or did you they say are, four? They are four They're PBM. They're four PBM reform. They are okay. four PBM reform. Uh, uh, you know, they have endorsed uh, some of the legislation or some of the concepts that are coming out of Congress right now. Wow. They call themselves the transparent PBMs, and they have their own ad campaign as as well. So they have, uh, I think, broken off from maybe some of the 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 more larger and established PBMs um, uh, to find their own voice, and we are PBMs who are pro-PBM um, reform. So are they just trying to get on the right side of this whole thing, or what? Do you, what what's their real, what's the end game? I think the, <laughs> so I think the end game is, depending on, you know, I think that their models may operate a little different from maybe mm -hmm. some of the larger PBMs, and they're already transparent with their claims and how they make money in a lot of spaces, yeah. so I think it could be not much changes um, <laughs> for them, okay. and they're probably not as impacted maybe by some of these provisions as, as maybe others are, and so I think that they want to to make the case that there is some transparency out there, and they want to be the, the voice of that. Well, since you guys had mentioned so many, this this is a bipartisan issue, and so many people are coming together within Congress to you know help, um, you know, to provide more transparency. Are we still seeing any opposition within Congress to this? In in Congress, no. I, okay. I yeah, I, yeah. It, notice the silent response to that. <laughs> exactly. I'm yeah. trying to think. Does there anybody? So, so we actually, yeah, we have the luxury right now of all being in the same room. This is really great, and I get to actually see their faces right in the reactions. They literally both just looked at each other and kind of. Uh, you want to take this one? <laughs> I have not been in any room I where, I, exactly where I've heard a member of Congress say, "Hey, PBMs, you're doing the right thing." Like, hey, you know, I got your back. Okay. I, I got not, your back. I got, I got you on this one. No, I mean, honestly, it was a question that came up at RBC, and we were kind of asking, you know, has there been any opposition to it? And I remember uh, Buddy Carter just mm -hmm. kind of taking back, and he's like, you'd be surprised at how mm -hmm. pro everybody is for PBM reform. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure we're still on the right we're track. We're still on the right track. <laughs> I, um, I was having, um, I was at an event with Representative Diana Harshberger, who's mm -hmm. the second pharmacist in Congress, mm -hmm. um, elected after Buddy Carter and represents Tennessee. And I'll note a comment that she made. You know, she said, "We it's not that we want to tear PBMs down. It's not that we want to put them out of business. 
we just want to look into and examine some of their practices and really just make sure that patients actually benefit from them. Correct. Um, Correct. So I thought that that was, because yeah. I think that some of the rhetoric is harsh. And again, if you look at some of these ad campaigns and commercials, it does kind of give a message of let's just burn it all down yeah. and, and start yeah. all over. And so I thought, you know, coming from a pharmacist herself saying that's not what we want to do. We just want to make sure that people are benefiting. Yeah. Well, and contrary to popular belief, the best public policy is made in the middle. It's not made on either end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all we seek to do, too, is help help define public policy in a way that benefits pharmacies and pharmacists across the country. And some of that's going to include PBM as a part of the, the health care cycle. It's not to burn them down. <laughs> that sounds great. Two, two opposite sides coming together to meet in the middle to make decisions. It's a novel idea. It's a novel idea. <laughs> but absolutely love it. Um, well, let's talk about some of the trends now that will maybe trickle into 2024. And then when we were talking before we uh, started recording, we mentioned drug, uh, drug shortages mm -hmm. and how that could start impacting uh, 2024, as well as any other you know uh, trends that you guys see coming. Sure. You know, the cable news cycle really in influences, obviously public policy and mm -hmm. what we hear and what's being discussed. And so um, you, you're hearing lots of reports around drug shortages across the country and mm -hmm. impacting the patients. And those are the most questions I get from legislators in, in the majority of states is what's happening with drug shortages? Why are they happening? What can we do to correct that? We want to make sure that our constituent can get the cancer drug they need or our constituent can get the ibuprofen they need for their child. Um, not all topics can be legislated. And this could be one that there's no legislative fix for. Yeah. Um, but that's why I think it's really important to have these conversations and bring everybody to the table, everybody in, impacted, hospitals, pharmacists, um, distributors, manufacturers, to really understand where the root of the problem is. And, yeah, there's and so how many factors. Yep. I mean, yeah. And the reason for one shortage is not the reason for 100%. the percent mm -hmm. Correct. You know, there, yep. it's, it's certainly not a one-stop shop that you can find solutions, and I completely agree with, with Heather's assessment. No one in the healthcare supply chain benefits from shortages. Um, certainly not patients, but none of us who are also, you know, distributors, pharmacists, uh, providers, no one benefits from it. Um, but it is absolutely extremely complex. A lot of members of Congress will point to onshoring, you know, where we get some of our API, bringing a lot of uh, production and manufacturing back on the domestic side. Um, and not saying that's not that's not saying at all that's a, a bad solution. I think it certainly could be a contributing factor to mitigating shortages. But also, that does not happen overnight. That mm -hmm. is still right. much like any of these complex factors, a years-long policy change that it would take to impact. Um, and so, as we were talking about before we got started, you know, we knew PBMs were going to be at the top. We, we knew that they were going to get, you know, taken <laughs> to, the, to the front of the line, so to speak, as far as healthcare policy issues. But drug shortages is something that we've seen rise to the level mm -hmm. of attention, both at the state and federal level, a little bit more. Um, this sort of started, you know, last year, around this time last year, last fall, Parents were writing their members of Congress because they couldn't find children's and infant Tylenol and children's and infant Motrin as, you know, the fall season mm -hmm. weather changes. You start to get more colds and, and flu. Um, and then it rose to, I think, a level of higher of attention, which Heather already alluded to, um, with the shortage of, of, of chemotherapy cancer um, drugs and some generic injectables. And so this has caused Congress to start to have some conversations with the Food and Drug Administration, reach out to try to have conversations with others in the healthcare supply chain, um, write letters about how 
um, you know, asking questions about how we can address this. And then last but certainly not least, offer legislation. Mm -hmm. And we've seen draft legislation that was circulated um, out of the House at the end of the summer. Um, it has not been formally introduced. Um, the Energy and Commerce Committee, which introduced the draft legislation, asked for stakeholder feedback. So a variety of stakeholders um, um, wrote in their thoughts about the, the, their response to the legislation. But to Heather's point, I, I, I totally agree. It's probably, it, if there is going to be legislation, it is, again, one of many factors and solutions. Okay. And the things that we have to be careful about if we're going to enact legislation either at the federal or, or state level is that there are not unintended consequences. Yeah. And that to yep. make sure that at the end of this, when you're implementing it from one sector of the, the healthcare supply chain, that it doesn't crunch another. Because what you eventually end up doing is you just exacerbate yep. those shortages that you were trying yeah. to to stop. And that's why you can't just, I mean, we like to complain about how long it takes public policy to move forward, but this, in this issue in particular, there's not going to be one quick fix. And if there is a piece of legislation that passes very quickly on this, I guarantee you it's, it's going to be one that we're probably going to be looking at again and altering. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a place for a thoughtful public conversation and giving public policy the time to do its work before just kind of slapping on some kind of fix that isn't really going to solve the problem. From an independent pharmacy standpoint, obviously DIR fees and you know is always at the top of mind, obviously PBMs. Mm -hmm. Where do you see that kind of falling in 2024? We just talked about a lot of the things that are in process right now. Do you think 2024, 2025, as we get into these uh, the next couple of years, how do you feel the independent pharmacists will, um, you know, will, you know, will really, you know, benefit from all this that's happening? So the DIR legislation does. I'm sorry, the DIR uh, final rule mm -hmm. goes into effect in a couple of months in January mm -hmm. 2024. Um, as you have mentioned already, Jason, there is legislation out there. Um, that community pharmacists have, have really helped support and mm -hmm. shore up. Um, I think that the the hope there is that that legislation could be uh, it's it's ripe to be tacked on to some of these PBM um, P PBM packages that are moving through through Congress. Um, independent pharmacies should very much be at the table at the beginning of next year in speaking with their legislators and educating them. On top of all of the legislation that we've mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act is also being implemented. And it's at the stage right now where um, the administration is starting the beginning of conversations to negotiate uh, 10 drugs under, under Part D. Um, I think one of the things that we also want to look at is some of these well-intended policy proposals are being introduced, being enacted, being implemented, um, that retail pharmacy does not suffer any consequences as a, as a result of it. No, absolutely. Um, I think that they should absolutely be at the table um, if there's any cause for concern to say, you know, while this, looked really, this looks really good and it looks like it could help benefit patients, what it does is actually, you know, cause some consternation in my business that I want to keep running and make sure that I can continue to serve my community in the capacity that we can for for many years. And so to talk about, you know, if there need to be tweaks, if there need to be fixes, um, to make sure that independent pharmacies are in a good space financially, from productivity standpoint, supply standpoint, to continue to serve the communities that they are. That yeah, they yeah, are. we know we, it, it could be a tough go here in the next mm -hmm. couple of months before that DIR fee uh, legislation gets pushed through. But that really kind of teased me up here for Heather. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we, we see from a state level, it's a little bit easier to advocate for your pharmacy rather than going you know, to That's a federal level. That's why we lay, love state government yeah. relations. <laughs> so what, you know, going forward here, what's the best way you think, you know, we always talk about, mm -hmm. you know, adv advocacy for pharmacists and what they can do on a state level. But, you know, it's I think it's a little bit different during an election year because there's there's a lot of different there's things. There's a lot that of happen. noise, right? What's the what's the sexiest topic that's right. out there? What's the one making, as you guys alluded to, what's the one making the biggest headlines? What's the media getting on? So how do you cut through all that? to advocate best for your pharmacy. Sure. And, I, and I'll start by saying I think the pandemic was a hard time for everyone. Mm -hmm. But what that brought into focus was the role that pharmacists played mm -hmm. in the healthcare system, even more than they were before. And your community pharmacist became a really important person. Even if they weren't an important person before, they now you now really realized how yeah. important they were to you. And that is true with state legislators across the country. They recognize that now. So they want to hear from you. And I still say the best way, the best way to advocate for yourself is to do a handwritten letter. Emails get lost. Phone calls don't get returned. Mm -hmm. Take a moment, sit down, write a letter, let your legislator, or type up a letter. You don't have to actually handwritten write a letter. <laughs> but type up a letter, let your legislator know what you're concerned about as a community pharmacist, as an independent pharmacist. Because at the end of the day, they see you as an independent business owner, so you're checking that box for them, right? So mm -hmm. you're contributing to your community in that way. And then you're contributing to the healthcare system and your community as well. And your voice is, is very, very important. So I would continue to do that. I continue to pay attention to what's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They're... It's an election year, presidential election year, but that doesn't mean state politics stop altogether. They're spending time doing listening sessions. Go to them. I know it sounds like a huge waste of time sometimes, but go to a listening session. Have mm -hmm. a conversation with your state legislator to let them know how you're feeling. Um, those are all just really important ways to stay. I think that's why I love state government relations work, is you can stay so closely connected to those that are making public policy. Yeah, we, we heard some stories at RBC of, uh, of pharmacists inviting their state representatives to their store. Invite them to I your store. A, Do a tour. A phenomenal it's idea. fantastic. Most state legislators have no idea what the back part of a pharmacy looks like. Exactly. They only know front of house. Yeah. Right? Show them what that looks like. Show them the team that's supporting you. Let that your team have conversations with them. Mm -hmm. And then they really then feel invested in the work that you were doing and in making a difference in their world, too. So... Yeah. I think if we could put members of Congress as disguised people like undercover boss and make them <gasps> we work should do that. I see a new show. <laughs> a new I see a new show. show. Okay, Let's copy, do that. We're, we're all copywriting that right now. Undercover pharmacist. Undercover pharmacist Congress. style. <laughs> Congress edition. Congress edition. Yeah, Congressional edition. I'm, I'm going to need a minute to come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on the pilot. We'll yeah. work on the pilot report back. But. Uh, all of those things are, you know, in, in election years, members of Congress and candidates are, you know, home in their districts they more are than they're in D.C. Yep. So to Heather's point, this is the time. Um, if you uh, have time to, to step away and go visit them in town halls because they are running for their jobs. Mm -hmm. And as you've mentioned, you are, uh, you know, independent pharmacies are an important part of their community, not just because of the work they're doing, you're employing people, you again, you are a business and you are serving patients and, and families. Um, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier that we didn't get a chance to expound on, but HR 1770, the oh, Equitable yeah. Community Access to Pharmacists Act. I mean, this was the origin of it, going back to Heather's point of how pharmacists stepped up to the plate yep. during the pandemic. And so that bill, if enacted, 
would create a permanent reimbursement mechanism for pharmacists under Part B to get reimbursed for the diagnosing, treatment, and vaccinations of COVID, flu, strep, and, and RSV mm-hmm. for the Medicare population. So again, that particular demographic, but also the most vulnerable, and especially in areas that are completely rural, rural, where patients have right. an opportunity to be in front of their pharmacists, um, in some cases, more than, than providers. And so... That bill at the federal level is making really good progress. It has a House and Senate companion, which increases opportunities for it to advance. Um, Cardinal Health continues to be supportive of that bill, continues to add co-sponsors to that bill, contribute to congressional hearings and listening sessions for patients and congressional staff, um, and really hopeful that that is a piece of legislation that can get added um, to either an end-of-year package or something that we can be see passed before um, this, the 118th Congress expires next year. But in the meantime, absolutely endorse inviting members of Congress to to your pharmacy to see what they do. The other thing that I would add is, you know, there are incumbent members of Congress, those who already represent you and they're looking to to recompete for their jobs, but there are also candidates that are also looking to take those spots too. And I wouldn't assume that a candidate that you may not be familiar with is running and trying to get to know their communities better as they campaign. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't assume they know everything that you do, um, and I would invite them out as well. It's certainly not a political issue. Um, Democrats and Republicans both need pharmacies in their communities. They both they they're they're both patients. They both need prescription medications, um, and it, it's a good opportunity in election year to educate all of them on what you do and what you contribute. Yeah, and don't always assume that an upcoming candidate Knows. won't be in the fight. You know, against two people that right. might be yep. in the in the running, and a lot of those town halls end up becoming almost uh, public forums right. where you could stand up, say your piece, say why you're there, what you're fighting for, you know, and give give the give the independent pharmacist, you know, the fighting chance. Yeah. Heather, yeah, anything else you want to add? No, I think Jerrica did a good job of summarizing it. I think just encouraging folks to really, I know it's hard to step out into that space, especially when you are so busy yeah. running your day-to-day operation and, and taking care of your patients and your employees, but There are so many ways, even if you take a moment once a year, you allocate, I'm going to spend some time writing some letters and inviting people to my pharmacy. Don't don't take for granted the effect that has. Members remember stories, and they remember people they meet. Yeah. And you represent a really powerful, impactful story for them. All right, we're going to end it right there. I want to say thanks to Heather and Jerrica for joining us on the show and for providing so much valuable information for our independent pharmacy listeners. Thanks for stopping by. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for subscribing to the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe and download the Cardinal Health Counter Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. See you on the next episode. Take care, everyone. <laughs>